Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. It's Sunday, the 11th of September. Welcome to the Naked Scientists. I'm Diana O'Carroll, and also here this week is Dave Ansell. Hi there. This week, we're exploring the science of supercomputing. We'll find out what a supercomputer actually is, how they work, and what sorts of problems scientists can solve with them. We'll also hear how computing world leader IBM are uniting over a million computers around the world to help discover new treatments for diseases like HIV and even new materials for things like solar cells. Plus, in this week's news, how the Earth got its gold. Scientists have discovered that the bling we all like to wear rained in from space. If you'd like to get in touch, and we love hearing from you, you can tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page. You can get to that at thenakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is a Naked Scientist with Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell, and we begin with a look at some of this week's top news stories. Diana. This week, an international team of researchers reported how they have used computer-aided design, or CAD, to build a precise mould that can aid breast reconstruction in cancer patients. Publishing in the journal Biofabrication, the team took laser scans of healthy breasts and then used CAD software to produce a tailor-made scaffold in silicon. Now, so far, this model has only been used by surgeons as a visual guide for reconstruction operations, but the researchers hope that very soon this 3D scaffold can be used in combination with tissue engineering. Lead author Professor Dietmar Hutmacher from Queensland University of Technology hopes to use this CAD model as a scaffold for the patient's own cells to grow through, meaning that a purpose-grown implant can be placed back into the patient. Now, the end result would be a new breast made of the patient's own tissue that is perfectly symmetrical to the original. And the study also examined how satisfied patients were following the operations where surgeons used this 3D model solely as a visual guide. And the patients did indeed report a higher degree of satisfaction with the end result than those patients whose surgeons used more traditional methods, i.e. pen and paper. So if tissue engineering takes off, this technology could lessen the impact of mastectomy and can be extended to other applications where tissue needs to be replaced with accuracy. So are they essentially getting a model of the breast and then 3D printing it in some manner, which in the material which ideally you could then grow cells through and then you'd have essentially a breast again. Yeah, that's exactly it. They print it off in 3D uh, material, presumably some kind of silicon, and it has to be porous so that these cells can grow through it. Beautifully customised, wonderful. Now, on a slightly different subject, our precious metals like gold have been found to have a cosmic origin. For many years, very rare elements like gold, platinum and tungsten have been fascinating and confusing geoscientists. They're much more common in ancient meteorites on Earth. Um, but the problem isn't that they're very rare on Earth, but they aren't rare enough. The Earth was formed out of similar material to the meteorites, but all the energy from crashing into it and sort of accumulating to form a sphere thoroughly melted it. Slowly, the dense iron and nickel sank towards the centre, forming a metallic core, which is also thought to create the Earth's magnetic field. The problem is that this, as this iron and nickel sank, it should have taken with it almost all of the iron-loving elements, like gold, platinum and tungsten, leaving almost nothing in the crust. 
Matthias Vilbold and his colleagues have proved where the golden ring probably came from. They've been studying the abundance of different isotopes of tungsten, the common tungsten 184 compared to the less common tungsten 182. It's interesting because tungsten 182 can be created by the decay of another element, hafnium 182, and the hafnium forms mineral silicon, so it wasn't pulled down into the core. So if no extra tungsten has been added to the system, there should be lots of extra 182 in the crust compared to the ancient meteorites. Interestingly, they didn't find this signal strongly in most of the rocks from all around the world they tested of various ages, except in very ancient 3.8 billion-year-old rocks in Greenland. This is very interesting as these rocks date from the end of a period of bombardment by meteorites. The group suggests that the meteorites brought in large quantities of tungsten 184 and, of course, all the other elements like gold and um, platinum to all over the rest of the Earth, but happened to miss Greenland. And then all all subsequent rocks created on Earth have had lots of uh, meteoritic tungsten 184 mixed in. So this indicates a large proportion of the gold and platinum in your rings and any jewellery you've got, and of course the tungsten in your drill bits, probably crashed to Earth in meteorites relatively late in the Earth's history. So that's fascinating. All of the nice, pretty, heavy metals, and it's, it's these sort of heavy uh, decorative metals, actually came from outer space. Yes, um, certainly a very, very large proportion of it. How odd. So also in the news this week, researchers here in Cambridge have created mammalian stem cells that only contain a single set of chromosomes. Now, most mammalian cells are diploid. They contain two copies of each chromosome. And this is a complication for cell biologists and geneticists hoping to study the function of individual genes. So joining us now to discuss this work is Dr. Anton Woods. Hello. Good evening and thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Good to have you here. Can you start off then with um, why would haploid mammalian cells be useful? As you just said, basically normal animal cells are basically diploid, meaning they have two chromosomes, one from the father and one from the mother. So basically for each gene, there are two copies present in the cell. And basically the genome contains all the information that is needed for an organism to develop. And scientists uh, have uh, already obtained the sequence of all of those genes. However, we have to still figure out how these genes interact and what their overall contribution to development is. In that sense, what has proven very fruitful is just to look what happens if you sort of you lose the function of a particular gene and look what basically what effect it does have on development. If you're now trying to mutate genes in a diploid cell, it's very hard to hit both copies of the very same gene. And for this reason, it's very hard to determine then what the loss of this gene has a consequence for the cell. In haploid cells, you have only a single chromosome set and hence if you introduce a particular mutation automatically gene function is uh, sort of ablated and you can study the resulting effect. I see so rather than having pairs just by having this one chromosome with the gene that you want to study it sort of cuts out that extra factor of, of uncertainty. Yeah basically the genome has sort of a backup copy and that's lacking in the haploid case. I see so how have you gone about creating these these haploid cells? Basically, it, it has been long known that in, in mammals you can activate uh, the, the X cells or the oocyte and sort of uh, trick it into thinking it is fertilized without actually supplying a paternal genome via, via the sperm, which would uh, be introduced during normal fertilization. So by chemical um, manipulation, you can activate an X cell and it will divide and form an embryo with just the maternal chromosome set. And we have taken these embryos now and removed uh, a small cell clump, basically from the blastocyst stage, and 
uh, brought this into cultural conditions, which have been highly optimized over the over the recent years by a number of groups. And this has allowed us sort of to induce proliferation in these haploid embryonic cells in culture and allowed us sort of to maintain a permanently proliferative, so growing cell line in culture. Um, have you put them into anything living? The cell that we, we cultivated is sort of, um, referred to as an embryonic stem cell and uh, conventional diploid embryonic stem cells have the ability to form basically all cell types of the embryo, of the mouse embryo. So we were very interested what is actually the potential of sort of a haploid embryonic stem cell. So we have introduced basically our stem cells back into the blastocyst of, of mice and looked if they can contribute to development. And to a large degree, they do so. So they can contribute the multiple organs and form different cell types in the embryo. However, we noticed that when they enter basically development and sort of differentiate into functional cell types, they diploidize. So basically their genome content becomes more normal. They end up with uh, pairs of chromosomes rather than the single ones. Why do you think that is, that they revert back to that state? We're not particularly clear on, on this, but one thought is that in, in mammals normally uh, in female mammals, one of the two X chromosomes uh, becomes inactivated, and that's uh, to compensate for the dosage to sort of the male genome equivalent, which has only a single X chromosome, but also a Y chromosome. And so one idea is that basically these cells would be not balanced. So the normal developmental program is optimized for one active X chromosome and two sets of autosomes. How in our haploid uh, case, we have a single X chromosome opposed to a single set of autosomes. So basically the X chromosome dosage is too high by a factor of two. And so we think that by sort of duplicating the maternal chromosome set, these cells can now inactivate one of the two X chromosomes again and sort of have a more normal gene expression pattern for development. I see. So so you can actually get cells acting sort of fairly normally even within this haploid state. But could this actually shed light on um, on another area of genetics, on epigenetics? Oh, indeed, the possibilities with the haploid cells would be now sort of to investigate uh, different pathways. This can range from cell uh, signaling and um, metabolic pathways, but also, of course, interest in my group is, is geared towards epigenetic pathways, sort of gene regulatory pathways detecting development. And I think we can tweak those cells by uh, deriving a suitable reporter constructs uh, into situations so that we can select for epigenetic mutations and sort of study how these processes are regulated, particularly in mammals. So this could really open a whole new field up in genetics. That's fantastic. Well, thanks, Anton. That's Anton Woods from Cambridge University. And that work was published in the journal Nature this week. Dave. Again, onto a somewhat different subject. Engineers have managed to build thermal camouflage. Anything which will, is warm will grow. If it's very hot, it will glow in visible light, so you can see something glowing red hot or orange or even white hot. But even at body temperature, you are glowing, but you're glowing with invisible infrared light. If you've ever watched a police show, you've probably seen the footage from thermal cameras in helicopters which detect this light, so all the thief is glowing beautifully and the police manage to chase him. But this glow isn't only a problem for criminals, but also for the military, as a beautifully camouflaged tank in conventional light will still look just like a tank in the thermal infrared. A part of BAA Systems, based in Sweden, has developed a new form of camouflage which might help. It does this by covering your tank with lots of little th electrical heat pumps, which I think pump heat from the, the front into the air or from the air back into the front. Um, and because the air is transparent, you can't see the fact it's hot or cold. Um, these pixels can heat or cool the surface of the tank very rapidly, and the temperature of each of the pumps can individually set, so they work like pixels, building up almost like a video screen, thermal video screen. 
This means that the pixels can be set to mimic the temperature and pattern of the landscape behind the tank. So they've got a thermal camera pointing it behind the tank and then they kind of project this image on the front of the tank and so the tank appears to disappear. Or it can even be set to make the tank pretend to be a car or any other object. Um, they can also make these pixels much larger for something very big like a ship where there's no point trying to make it invisible close to. And apparently the system's fairly robust and actually even adds to the armour of the vehicle. That's incredible. But I can imagine just having lots of fun with that and maybe sort of generating this thermal image of a boat in the middle of a woodland or something just to confuse people. <laughs> yeah, on, they've actually got videos of them kind of projecting really random stuff on the side of the tank. OK, most of them adverts for BAE systems, but okay. <laughs> so, so you could pr- produce a film for people in, who happen to have thermal infrared cameras if you wanted. If you wanted to do that, I think that would be a very expensive way of doing that. But anyway, also uh, splashing all over the science news this week is a host of res- revelations about Australopithecus sediba. Now, this particular early human has been in and out of our show since 2010, when Professor Lee Berger from the University of the Witzwaltersrand first published his discovery. What's important about these fossils is that at almost two million years old, they are amazingly preserved, and they demonstrate characteristics of both Australopithecines and the species Homo. Now, Australopithecines are those early humans that had small brains but could walk about some of the time on two legs, whereas Homo tends to have a larger brain and walk almost exclusively on two legs. So publishing in the journal Science, it's been demonstrated that Sediba has some of the features of both groups. So here's Professor Lee Berger talking to our very own Chris Smith about some of those features of the Sediba skull. When you look at his nose, you can see that he's developing a real nose. He's actually beginning to project in this area. He's got that wide top of his head. And big brows. Big brows, yeah. uh, you know, kind of reminiscent of what we sometimes describe as Homo erectus type brows. The sides of his head along the temporal just above your ears are very straight and flat. In Australopithecines, they curve outward, creating this sort of flared look. And of course, you know, you're seeing a whole skull seen in rock right here. We can look inside of it and see this. So you, this, you scan this, you work out what's on the inside of that bone without having to touch it. Absolutely. And, you know, of course, because you know, your brain is sitting there pumping away with every heartbeat you have, forming a picture of itself on the inside of your skull, we can take the inside of that skull and create effectively what I'm holding here, an endocast. So that is what the brain would have looked like were, you, were this alive now and we taking the brain out. That is his brain, and it's about 420 cubic centimetres, and it's an interesting-looking thing. I mean, already you can see that it's somewhat asymmetrical. That's something that we tend to associate more with us than we do with apes and such as that. that the area along the side here is expanded, uh, or at least appears to be, and that's an the area, area we you're referring area. to is Broca's area. Now, that's... Which, the bit I'm using to speak to you. That's exactly right. Well, at least that's one of the hypotheses of how that's using. And it has long been tied to the idea that if we were going to see a speaking hominid, we would see expansion in Broca's areas first. And you, you be the judge of, uh, of that, whether that is. It's a, it's a brain that's not shaped like a hominid at two million years should be shaped like. It's a brain shaped in most of what we see superficially like something you'd see a little bit later with a few hangbacks of that. It's, it's a, small. It's, it's way too small. And there are 
are other findings that put Sidiba somewhere in between the Australopiths and Homo. It has arched feet, but quite ape-like heels and calves. It has cuffed teeth, which were large, but not as large as the usual Australopith. There are also differences from the earlier Australopithecines in the shape of the Sidiba's pelvis. The flat, flaring sections, known as the iliac blades, are quite thick and vertically orientated, as you see in modern humans. But these aren't uh, any indications that these changes were actually associated with having bigger-brained babies. So what the authors very cautiously posit is that Sidiba's hips were becoming more homo-like through walking much more like homo, and that bigger brains weren't required to drive certain changes in the pelvis. Plus, the fossil may provide some much-sought answers about the mysterious early hominin from Southeast Asia. Now that's Homo floresiensis, or the hobbit. And one of the problems, of course, you know with the hobbits and Flores, one reason people criticized it was there was no good ancestor. We didn't have an ancestor that had that small of a brain with all these derived features of Homo in it that could possibly give rise to something like Flores until now. So you could be looking at two things. One, the early evolution of language, and two an explanation for where the Hobbit people came from. It, it, and there are even little things like this beaking at the front of the brain that might tie very, very directly to that. What a find. And you can hear more of that in a special half-hour interview with Professor Lee Berger on our website that's at thenakedscientists.com. Dave. And now looking at what else has been making scientific headlines, here's Mira Senthlingham with this week's Newsflash. Having an active social life could help you lose fat. There are two forms of fat in the body energy-storing white fat and energy-burning brown fat. And now Matthew During and colleagues at Ohio State University have found that exposing mice to a challenging, socially interactive environment with more mice, more space and toys resulted in a much leaner population. So when we looked at these animals and looked at the fat, it was remarkably reduced. The total fat was reduced by that 50 to 70%. Fat changed from white fat to brown fat, making it resistant to obesity and giving it much greater long-term health as well. A new biopolymer could increase the effectiveness of probiotic-friendly bacteria. Until now, the main challenge facing probiotic manufacturers has been getting enough bacteria to survive the acidic conditions of the stomach. But now, Isa Radetzka's team from the University of Wolverhampton have developed a polymer that acts as a protective coating. It's a bacterial polymer. It's water-soluble, biodegradable and edible. We, for example, use uncoated and coated bacteria into simulated gastric juice. The ones which were not coated, after two hours it was none left, but the ones which were coated with our polymer survive intact nearly 100%. The increase in survival time will allow greater numbers of bacteria to make it through to the gut, where they do their work. A herb found in the mountains of the Pyrenees can live for up to 300 years without any signs of ageing. Johan Erlian from Stockholm University studied 260-year-old samples of the plant Borderia pyrenaica to get further insight into the role and importance of ageing in living organisms. We could find no evidence of uh, decreased performance with age, no evidence of senescence. Growth and reproduction were uh, constant over age, and survival tended to increase with age. So actually performance improved with age. The important finding is that there is a lot of theoretical arguments if every organism has to senesce or whether selection can actually favour lack of senescence. And looking in different organisms will sort out why senescence sometimes is important and why it sometimes seems to be absent. 
Sony have launched a personal 3D viewing headset as part of its increasing 3D technology range. The headset was launched at the IFA 2011 Consumer Electronics Show in Berlin this week, with the head-mounted display intended to give an immersive 3D experience. The futuristic headset, complete with headphones, uses two high-definition screens, which feed separate videos to a viewer's eyes, in order to create a 3D illusion. However, the gadget doesn't come cheap, with a current retail price of $785. And finally, NASA have released high-resolution images of the Apollo moon landings. NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter captured the sharpest images ever taken of the Apollo 12, 14 and 17 landings. Using low-altitude narrow-angle cameras, the images clearly show the movement of astronauts on the moon's surface, as well as the movements of the lunar rover. As NASA's Mark Robinson explained, whilst looking over images of the landing of Apollo 17. Um, you can see very clearly both the astronaut tracks and the beautifully sharp and crisp parallel lines, which are the tracks of the lunar roving, lunar roving vehicle. And it's pretty neat because you know what the LRV looks like. You can, if you squint really hard, begin to resolve the seats and the fact that the wheels were uh, left turned slightly to the left. And you can see what Mark's discussing, as well as other images of the moon landings, online at our news pages at nakedscientists.com forward slash news. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. Shortly, we'll be delving into the science of supercomputers. But first... Over the last few years, there have been various government schemes here in the UK to pay farmers to leave grass strips around the edges of fields of crops. The idea is to encourage wildlife, but research suggests they might be better off planting wildflowers. The research by Robin Blake from the University of Reading showed that by encouraging flowers, farmers would also encourage bumblebees, which are currently declining in numbers. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham joined Robin in a field near Reading in Berkshire to see how his experiment worked. Grassy strips are really common, and while they offer some biodiversity benefits, for example, for ground-nesting birds or predatory invertebrates such as spiders and beetles, because there aren't any wildflowers present, there's nothing there to attract insect pollinators. So what did you do then? Our project is looking at like two different management treatments. So we're adding wildflowers, and we're also applying a graminicide. So that's a grass herbicide. It has the aim of suppressing the grasses, and really giving the wildflowers a chance of becoming established in the strips. Let's look then at this strip here. We've got wildflowers in front of us, rather obvious wildflowers. You'll have to identify these for me. Okay, <laughs> what have we got here? So we've got oxide daisy here, which is in flower. This is knapweed, we've got yarrow, ladies' bed straw, ribwort plantain, bird's foot trefoil here, the yellow flower. And yet further down this strip is just grass. And that's representative of, you know, many of the grass margins in the UK. So you've got the wildflowers. Have you got the bumblebees? Yeah, we have. And in the plots that have received the wildflowers and the graminicide, we can see a 25-fold increase in bumblebee numbers compared to the existing grass strips, not just of bumblebees, but of solitary bees, honeybees, butterflies as well. So this proves it works? It does, yes. OK, well, let's talk to a farmer then, Mark Robbins, who runs the estate here. Great, isn't it? 
It looks absolutely fabulous, and uh, I'm very proud to have them on our stewardship margins, really. I mean, we put these margins down in 2003, and the mixtures that we were asked to put down by Natural England, the prescriptions that I put down when I was farming back in 1996, and they are just grass. I always had a view that they were environmentally very dull, so when Robin came along and said he'd like to try something out, I grasped the opportunity because, uh, you know, I wanted to see whether we were proven right or not, and it appears that we have been there is a, a difference though and a difference in effort a difference in in money involved in this if you just left this strip you would end up with grass but you have to actively spray it with something to suppress the grass if you want the nice wild flowers you're absolutely right on one level but what you've got to remember is before these strips were put in in 2003 there was a crop right up to the hedge so we had to actively plant the grass and we had to actively keep the docks and the nettles and the thistles out so on one level yes you're right but on another level if you're going to plant a new stewardship strip around the edge of a field you might as well plant it with something that's going to provide some sort of benefit which is what we appear to have seen here it does rely on a subsidy but where i was coming from in putting these things in is that if we can provide some sort of environmental benefit for that subsidy then one feels that one's doing one's bit where we are now with these sorts of mixed fixtures and, and, and margins, actually you are providing a real benefit and not just grass strips that don't really do a great deal. Have you also noticed bees coming back? Uh, very much so. I mean, you just whilst you were interviewing Robin just then, if you look at the detail of it, you can actually see activity there. If we were to go and stand up on the rest of the, the grass strip, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't see a great deal. Going back to the pollinators and things, we've got the spring linseed that's now come out into flower here. What better example of the fact that we need as agriculture, as consumers, of food we need these pollinators to make sure that the crops in the field are pollinated and here we are we've got a crop of linseed on the one side and we've got insect activity encouraging the, the bumblebees and the nectar bees into this strip so it, it seems to work robin this is a, a great example it strikes me of, of science this side of me applied to the real world which is the crop growing on the on the right of me yeah absolutely and i think it's just important to see how these habitats in the margins can be used to help the crops you know because obviously bees are important in the pollination of crops such as linseed this is the research where do you go from here because you need other farmers on board really the research that i've done i've i've focused just on four farms in southern england and whilst we've replicated those results across those four farms uh, if i'm going to make the policy makers listen then i think we need more data on a range of farms across the UK but more importantly we need to get the farmers to do the treatments for themselves and really show that the you know the benefits can work. That was Robin Blake from the University of Reading along with farmer Mark Robbins talking to Planet Earth presenter Richard Hollingham in a field somewhere in darkest Berkshire. More from the Planet Earth team online at thenakedscientist.com slash planetearth. Now, supercomputers are, as the name suggests, extremely powerful computing devices. They're used to model extremely complicated systems, such as the weather, as well as for high-precision simulations and complex calculations required in quantum physics. So that might be molecular modelling, might even be predicting revolutions and many, many more things. Now, the Edinburgh Parallel Computing Centre, or EPCC, provides computing resources to Edinburgh University and to industry. And we're joined by Dr Chris Maynard. Hello. Hello. So can you tell us what is a supercomputer? A supercomputer is a computer that can perform calculations very quickly, much more, much faster than a normal computer would. 
Typically, this is done by computing in parallel, having lots of processing units or nodes working together. Each of these nodes could be a computer one finds in a desktop PC or a laptop. But how they're connected together in hardware and how they cooperate to solve the problem is very important to the speed of the calculation. What is the structure then? How big are these things going to be? And what is their power consumption and the, the speed of the individual parts that go into it? So, for instance, we run Hector, which is the UK's national high-performance computing service, uh, along with other partners. And with, this is funded by the Office of Science and Technology through EPSERC's high computing program. And this particular machine is called Hector, and it's a Cray XE6. It has uh, 1,856 nodes in it, and each of these nodes is a 12-core Opteron processor. So that gives you a total of 44,544 cores. Uh, each of these uh, Opterons is uh, coupled with a Cray Gemini routing and communication chip. Uh, so in total, it, it has a very large memory of about 60 terabytes, and its uh, theoretical peak performance is 360 teraflops which is 360 trillion computations per second and it's the fastest ca uh, computer in the UK and the 24th fastest in the world. Okay so those are really sky high numbers then I mean that's going to throw my poor little ancient laptop into the shade but once you've, you've got this hardware uh, what is the software that goes on top of that how, how does it work um, compared to a normal program that you'd have on an everyday computer? The bit that uh, makes a supercomputer super is um, is how these um, computing nodes are, are coupled together. So you have some hardware that does it, but you have to then write some software that will, will enable them to talk to each other. Typically, what for science programming, what you might have is a, a, a model of a message passing. So we would split the problem up across many processors so that each processor has a small amount of data that's local to it. Then each processor runs the same calculation on this local data. But at some point during the calculation, and quite regularly during the calculation, the processors have to talk to each other. They have to communicate with each other. So they would send a message uh, to your neighbor. And there's a communication grid, and they would speak to each other by you would send some data to your neighbor on the right, and you would receive it from, from, the, from your neighbor on the left. And then you might do that in, in many dimensions, like down, left, right, back, forth, depending on the problem. Okay, so given you've, you've got this uh, communication type software, does that mean then that you develop that rather than rebuilding a new supercomputer each time? Because obviously the expense of that must be huge. Yes, absolutely. So you would try and have this uh, programming model that you would use to the, so that all these processors can talk to each other, and you'd write a, you'd write a scientific program in, in a language you would normally use, like C or Fortran. And then if you were going to use this message passing model, there's a communications library called MPI, which you can then use on more than one machine. Okay, and are supercomputers, are they advancing at the same rate that normal computers are? Well, that's a very interesting question because that they are, but there's uh, there's something called um, Moore's law, which is an empirical observation, which is that the number of transistors in an area of silicon has doubled every 18 months or so, and this has been true since the 60s. And if you have a, a smaller circuit, your computer can run faster, but it also runs hotter. And since uh, perhaps the middle of, of this decade, since 2005 or so, it's been no longer possible to get sufficient power into and out of a chip fast enough, and so it gets too hot. So you can't run it as one, as one computer chip anymore, but what you can do is run them as two chips or four chips or, or many more chips, so you're getting many more cores on one piece of silicon. But now, if you're running this, having many of these nodes together that are then multi-core, you've now got uh, an even more 
complicated communication pattern between things that can see the same piece of memory on one chip and things that can't that then have to communicate to send a message between the chips. So really it's, it's like building a brain essentially with lots of neurons. But what sort of science are you, uh, are you doing in Edinburgh? What, what are the um, models that you're building with your supercomputer? Let me give you an example. So last week you talked about scientists modelling the response to, heart, to the heart uh, of, of drugs. Well, at EPCC we've done some work with some scientists from King's College in Oxford to improve the performance of their computational model of the electrophysiology of the heart. So it can now run on many more processes or cores than it could previously up to now, say, 16,000. And this means they can do a one-second simulation of the heart, uh, which would take around a minute rather than, say, more than one hour previously. Uh, this is a great improvement and it goes much faster, but if you want to uh, use this model to, say, guide surgery, then you need to be able to do it in real time. I see. So this could really um, help medicine as well and help surgeons while they're working. Absolutely. Uh, another example might be if you look into the night sky tonight, you can see just beyond the plough, you can see a supernova has exploded. Um, and if you want to try and understand uh, how a supernova works, you might try and run a calculation uh, on a supercomputer. Right, OK. Um, so thanks, Chris. Uh, Chris Maynard will be sticking around. Uh, he will be here to answer some questions. If you do want to send them in, please send them to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Um, that's Chris Maynard from the Edinburgh Parallel Computing Centre. The Cambridge University High Performance Computing Resource, or HPC, much like the Edinburgh Parallel Computing Centre we've just heard about, provides computing facilities to researchers at the university. Paul Collager, director of the HPC, showed me around their computer system called Darwin. What you're looking at is a rack of commodity x86 servers. So we have 32 servers in a rack, and each rack in total contains 128 processors which you might find in your desktop machine at home. So I'm guessing with a supercomputer the important thing to do is somehow to connect these all together. There appear to be some what look like standard network cables and some other connectors which I don't actually recognize. We have standard Ethernet networks for our data and our administration and then a specialist network called InfiniBand for our parallel processing. So the InfiniBand network is particularly high bandwidth and low latency, so the time it takes to get a message from one server to the other is very low, and the amount of data we can send is very high. So this is very important if you've got computers on different sides of the room which are working on the same problem, they might want to communicate, and doing that as quickly as possible is very important. Yes, in total we, we have over 800 servers in this one room, Housed in those servers is approximately 4,000 CPU cores, and all servers can talk to all servers at once with a bandwidth of about 3 gigabytes a second. So what's the advantage of using large amounts of essentially standard hardware over something a lot more proprietary? The standardization has led to a, a dramatic decrease in price, so the price point has dropped a hundredfold, and also the rate of advance of the commodity market is very high, so we get a doubling of performance every two years, which is given to us for nothing from the general advances in the computer industry. And to explain a bit more about Darwin, Paul now joins us here in the studio. Hi, Paul. Hi, Dave. So how does Darwin differ from Hector, which we talked about earlier in Edinburgh? Okay, so both Darwin and Hector 
are best in class, tightly coupled supercomputers, which means they're designed for the maximum performance in how messages are sent around the machine. So in that respect, they're the same. Darwin differs from Hector in that Darwin is the commodity machine made from standard off-the-shelf components, whereas uh, Hector is a proprietary machine. Uh, the processes in both machines actually are, are commodity, but Darwin has a, has a commodity interconnect, whereas Hector has a proprietary interconnect. So that, that interconnect that, which has been spoken about that makes a supercomputer super is open in Darwin. And uh, basically we own all the technology and how it's put together, whereas in Hector your vendor owns the technology. So I guess this is an advantage, sort of both. It means you get some more flexibility and it's cheaper because if it, if anyone can build the kit, it's going to be a lot cheaper. Yeah, well, the, the more of the value add that you own yourself, the less value add the vendor can charge you for. So you can drive price points down. And also the, the rate of advancement is quicker. And so this has led to a great improvement in supercomputing over the years. Brilliant. So what are you actually doing here in Cambridge with um, your supercomputer? So Cambridge is primarily used for research in the University of Cambridge and we have over 400 users on the machine from 65 uh, research groups and uh, those guys have generated uh, around 300 publications in the last four years so they're very active doing all kinds of science and I, I can tell you about some so, of that. So they essentially they decide they want to do something, they then um, write some code and send it to you and run it? Yeah, there's a range of activities so Example, a, a recent new activity on the machine is the UK QCD Consortium. So this is a, a consortium of researchers from uh, UK and uh, Glasgow and, and elsewhere, and they're doing very complicated calculations looking at the nature of matter. So they're looking at the strong interactions known as quantum chromodynamics, comparing that calculation to experimental data that they get from the LHC experiment in CERN. And, and, and this is very common. So your scientist has a theory, he has calculations to try to instantiate that theory, and then he compares it to experiments. And these calculations can be very large. So quantum chromodynamics in the strong force of the forces which hold the nucleus of an atom together. Yes, exactly. And, uh, yeah, I've heard that actually calculating them has been almost impossible yeah, for a long, the, long time. The, the grid cells that you're talking about are million, a million, million points in your matrix that you have to calculate. And they need to calculate that, you know, over and over again. And then they get expressions of atomic mass, which they can compare very accurately. And if the, if the two numbers coincide, you know that your theory is correct. And so th this is really what simulation is used for in many different areas. So what else are you up to? Other things we're, we're looking at, we have a collaboration with the hospital, Brooks, where they have a, a, bio, a gene sequencing facility in the hospital. And uh, they have lots of these next-generation gene sequencing machines to look at your gene sequence for particular uh, disease cases and they generate all the data up there at the hospital then send it over a 10 gigabit ethernet link to our machine room in the centre of town we process the data and then send them back the answers. So they're attempting to compare lots of different genomes and find out which bits of the genomes are associated with different diseases? Yeah and in, in the clinic now it's quite common that you may well be genotyped for particular diseases and you need those answers back quickly obviously and so uh, they don't have disabilities for doing the calculations at the hospital, and we do. So we've partnered with them for doing that. So that, that's quite an interesting one. Uh, another interesting project just recently is the Planck satellite. So the astronomy department in Cambridge are collecting lots of data from this satellite called Planck on the cosmic uh, microwave background radiation. 
and that's an awful lot of data and that gives you information about the early universe so again we get sent lots of data we calculate it with lots of Monte Carlo simulations and then send them back the results so everything you've suggested up at the moment is involves large amounts of data yeah. Do you, are there difficulties with handling that sort of thing yeah well there's it's often spoke about recently in terms of the data deluge so data is increasing incredibly fast so that the quantum chromodynamics guys filled up 100 terabytes of disks in about four months. That was meant to last them three years. <laughs> okay, so we now have uh, around 600 terabytes of data. Next year we'll have a petabyte. A petabyte is 1,000 terabytes, and it's just exponentially growing. In fact, data requirements are growing five times faster than our compute requirements. So that's going to be a really major challenge, probably the biggest, a big challenge in the future. Yeah, the major challenge at the moment is how you architect your system to allow all that data to flow from the computer to the data. And then once it once the data's flowed there, what do you do with it? How do you store it? How do you analyse it? How do you keep it? Sounds like it will keep you occupied in the future. Well, Paul's here for the um, rest of the show, so if anyone's got any questions for him, then um, we can answer, ask them later. You can tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page. That's at thenakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Um, so that's Paul, the director of the Cambridge University High Performance Computing Resource. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. The World Community Grid is a project to create the world's largest public computing network to help power scientific research, and specifically research that benefits humankind. So work designing drugs or finding cures or treatments for disease. And the grid was launched in 2004 and it's operated by IBM. To find out more about the project, Chris Smith spoke to Joe Jasinski, Director of Healthcare and Life Sciences Research at the company. The World Community Grid is a group of researchers and a group of ordinary citizens uh, who have combined their efforts to build what is, in fact, in some sense, one of the world's largest supercomputers to solve problems that we believe are beneficial to mankind. And so what the grid is, anybody can join. It's using your own PC or computers that you own to join a, uh, a network of computers, and those computers are used by the scientists who are doing projects with the World Community Grid to do computations that would otherwise be impossible for them to do because they don't have enough computing power. So the way it works is you go to worldcommunitygrid.org and you can sign up your machine or machines and we download a screensaver to your machine. And when you're not using your computer, which is most of the time actually, even if you have it on and you're sitting in front of it, we can do some computations that, uh, that ultimately when they're done, we send the results back to a centralized computer, which we call the head node. Um, and after we've done enough of these computations, we present the data to the principal investigators, the scientists who are exploring things on the World Community Grid, and they can then understand their problem and, uh, and hopefully discover something new, like a new drug to treat HIV-AIDS or for dengue fever, or maybe finding new kinds of plastic materials that would make cheap solar cells available. Sounds terrific. How many computers or how many users do you have signed up actually contributing to this, this initiative? So we have just over half a million members, which could be individuals or it could be institutions like uh, schools or universities. Uh, and we have a total of about 1.8 million computers that are signed up by those members. So the grid itself consists of about 1.8 million nodes, as we would call them, or individual um, processors that can be applied to these problems. So on aggregate, how much computing time are you actually able to harness with the grid at any one moment? The, the problems run in background on your computer, so it's only using the background cycles. But if you 
assume a uh, reasonable PC or other kind of machine, then we're certainly in the teraflop range, so trillions of floating point operations per second or more. So does that make it probably one of the most powerful computing resources the planet currently has? So it is one of the most powerful computers on the planet currently, but it's only good at doing certain kinds of problems that are what are called embarrassingly parallel. The entire problem has to run on each machine, as opposed to a more traditional scientific supercomputer where one problem runs across thousands and thousands of processors on the same machine. In other words, there are certain problems which can be broken up into lots of little chunks and work very nicely in a parallel way, the way that you're doing it. But there are some problems that actually are a bit like a game of chess, where if you do this, then this has to happen and that needs to happen. And, and they're sort of sequential problems, which a supercomputer would be better at than your system. Yeah, that's, that's the basic idea. We don't actually break the problem up into chunks. The kinds of experiments that we do are, say, you want to test a bunch of different kinds of compounds that might be good drugs for fighting AIDS. And suppose you have, I don't know, a thousand drug compounds that you want to test, and you have a dozen proteins that you want to see if those drugs would stick to, and you need to do a bunch of calculations each time to figure out whether that's true or not. So suppose you had to do a very simple calculation, which was, does this molecule stick to this protein? But in order to get the entire answer you wanted, you had to do that calculation a million times. If you only had one computer, and you had to do one million of those calculations, and suppose the calculation only took a second, it would, in fact, take you about in excess of 10,000 years on your one computer to get all the computations done. On the other hand, if I had a million computers and I could run one individual computation on each of those million computers at the same time, it would take on the order of a second, which is what the World Community Grid does. It's not quite that fast, but you know, instead of doing it in years or months or thousands of years, we can do it in minutes or hours. So how does your project differ from, say, the SETI at Home project or the uh, initiative Foldit, where people are trying to work out structures of proteins by downloading a screensaver and analyzing a little bit of the protein, for example? Yeah, so from a technology perspective, it's the same kind of technology. The distinction with the World Community Grid is it's a not-for-profit organization, um, and we don't focus on one particular problem. So SETI at Home focuses on analyzing signals from space, Fold it focuses on analyzing protein folding, and they're controlled by a single individual or a single project. The World Community Grid works by soliciting projects from investigators at universities or other not-for-profit uh, organizations, and if we believe that your computation can run effectively on the grid, and if we believe that the results of, of your project might, in fact, be beneficial to mankind, like we could discover a new drug for forgotten disease or a new material that would uh, help the environment, then we grant you time on the grid, um, and you get to run uh, for as long as it takes to, uh, to finish your project. So IBM actually provides the what's called the head node, the machine that controls all the other machines, and we basically make it very easy for the principal investigator to get their problem onto the grid and then get their data back off the grid. So how many big projects are you looking at at any one time or considering, and what's the waiting list to get onto the grid? Currently we have nine projects active, and they're active at different phases. The waiting list is actually pretty short. So if any of the listeners out there are actually faculty or, or associated with research institutions that are doing not-for-profit work, and you're interested in applying for time on the grid, um, so there are two kinds of people in, in this project, right? There, there are the scientists who apply for time on the grid to see if they can solve their problem, and then there are, there's anybody, scientists, any ordinary people who want to contribute their computing time. So basically, um, you can be either or both. And you were going to say, if there's anyone out there who wants to get involved, what should they actually do? Who do you send your begging letter to? So you just go to worldcommunitygrid.org. If you're a PI, there's a, a section on the webpage that tells you uh, how to apply for time. 
If you want to donate time from your computer, there's a section that tells you how to download the screensaver. You can form teams. We have some uh, institutions that form teams. You can score points based on how many computations your team does. Uh, you don't get any prizes for doing that, but but people get very uh, interested in it. And the other thing you get to do if you're a contributor of time is you we, we have very nice write-ups of all these projects that are written in very simple terms so that most anybody can understand them about what the scientist is trying to accomplish and how it works. And if you want, you can pick one of these projects for your machine to work on. And let's finish by hearing some of the success stories so far. So what projects have you brought to fruition? What have been the outcomes? So the outcomes of most of these projects initially are publications in the scientific literature. In our Fight AIDS at Home project, we have, uh, have used the World Community Grid to discover some potentially new kinds of AIDS drugs. It will take many, many years, of course, to test whether those new compounds are, in fact, useful for treating AIDS, but that's true of any kind of drug discovery process. Uh, we've also uh, done some work with an investigator who is interested in finding cheap uh, plastic materials to make cheap solar cells. And again, using the World Community Grid to do a number of computations that were too big for the kind of computer he had available to him, he's been able to, to test and discover some potentially exciting new materials. That was Joe Jasinski from IBM Research talking to Chris Smith. This is a Naked Scientist with Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. Very soon we'll be finding out how the humble calculator can do complex calculations in seconds in our question of the week. But first we've got a few questions. We might start off with one for you, Paul, from Geronimo Garco um, on Facebook. What's the difference between a supercomputer and a normal computer? Firstly, I would say it's it's a matter of scale. So a normal computer would have one processor. A supercomputer would have the same processor, but maybe 100,000 of them. So the processors are the same, but scale is different. And then the interconnect is is completely different in a supercomputer, so that you can pass lots of data quickly. So just getting lots of normal computers and connecting them together with network cables wouldn't necessarily make it a supercomputer? Not unless you have the specialist network. And then, of course, there's many software layers on top of that, which which you require. And then the applications are, are where the real magic comes in. And I've got a question here, uh, also from Facebook, from Sean Hoskins. And he asks, can science develop a supercomputer that will keep my laptop from crashing? So I'll ask that to you, Chris. Uh, Hi, that's a good question. Um, In principle, when people design chips, they do use a a simulator in a computer to uh, understand how that chip is going to work. And the other thing you might have noticed is when your laptop crashes, uh, you get a little pop-up message saying, can you send the crash information to to Microsoft, for instance, if you're running a a Microsoft operating system? And the reason they're doing that is they're trying to collect data and information about why the laptops or why your computers crash so they can make a a model or a mathematical model. Now, if, if you had a mathematical model, Uh, you could then run it on a supercomputer and and, and try and predict and figure out why your laptop had crashed. So the answer is yes. Right. I I want them to fix my laptop then. That better get get in action soon. Thanks, Chris. And then maybe another question for you, Paul. Um, Michaela Livingstone is wondering what the energy cost is of keeping a computer cool. I guess it depends on the computer. Um, Actually, no, it more depends on the air conditioning system you've got. But in in Cambridge, our power costs are 25% of our total running costs, which in this case is about £250,000 a year. And the cooling is one third of that power. So around £80,000 a year just to keep it cool. I guess um, if you're just dealing with an individual laptop, then the cooling is going to be far, far less than that because it's just running a small fan. In in the in a laptop, you can just cool passively to air, where we have to we have to actively take the heat away. 
Brilliant. And very quickly, uh, I've got another question here for you. So one for you to speculate on, maybe. Uh, with no humans, how long would automated systems run for? Actually, we run our previous supercomputer, which was the Sun, for probably about three months without any human intervention. And uh, I won't go into why that was. And um, our, our, our current machine would probably run for a couple of weeks. <laughs> okay, so, so it might survive a, a nuclear event maybe for a little while then. Uh, so, Dave, I've got a question here from Lucas Sport Injury, and he asks, why are electric sparks blue? Electric spark is essentially electricity flowing through a gas. And in doing that, it has to rip the electrons off the gas. And then sometimes those electrons recombine with the atoms, at which point they release lots of energy in the form of light. And different gases release different colours of light. So argon produces a purpley colour, helium quite often a reddy colour. Sodium as a gas produces a really bright orange colour, which you see from sodium streetlights. And nitrogen, which makes up most of the air, glows with a blue colour. So a spark is essentially nitrogen glowing. Right, so if you set off a spark on Venus, you probably get quite a different colour. Yes, I think um, Venus's atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide, and I think carbon dioxide certainly can glow with a kind of yellowy, greeny colour. I see. Well, I've got another question here. Uh, this is from Craig Churches, and he asks, could we harvest metals from the Earth's core? doesn't seem like a nice idea, especially considering all that gold which is apparently down there. I think... Practically, the answer is no. It's an awful long way down to the Earth's core, and building a tunnel down there, even if you could be bothered to dig the tunnel for 2,000 kilometres or whatever it is, um, you then have to support the sides of it, and the pressures down there are absolutely immense and ridiculously high, even if you ignore the fact it's at about 6,000 degrees centigrade down there. I, it's just not going to be practical. Far easier to go up and find some asteroids with the gold in the muffin space. <laughs> so a nice idea, but totally impractical. Thanks, Dave. Well, uh, it's now time for question of the week. So this week, we're going to take apart that old solar-powered exam friend, the calculator. Hello, my name is Alison Maychaud, and I live in London. And I was wondering, how does a calculator work? How can it make complex calculations in nanoseconds? Also, how does it display the result on the screen? So, assuming you're not using something that's steam-powered and has camshafts, it probably works something like this. Hello, all. My name is Jeffrey Zillahi. I'm currently a math teacher in Philadelphia, and I have a math consulting firm, mathgurus.info. So, we all know that calculators are these fast little machines that can do calculations at incredible speed and have served to make humanity a more computationally exact species. But exactly how do they work? Well, whether you're talking about a scientific, financial, graphing, or even a calculator on your phone, they all work in a similar fashion. In a nutshell, calculators, just like their big brother, the computer, work by understanding everything in terms of two states. We call this binary, and specifically those two states are given as either a zero or a one. So when we press buttons on a calculator, those buttons are connected to sensors that send electrical currents through the integrated circuitry of the calculator. This circuitry contains transistors that build up a logical framework for solving any given calculation. And the more transistors present, the more advanced the functionality of the calculator is likely to be. Transistors use electricity to be in an on state indicated by a 1 and off indicated by a 0. So when the calculator wants to add two numbers, it first converts those numbers into binary. For example, a 4 would be represented as 100 and a 2 would be represented as 10. From there, the process of addition is dictated by each column either summing to 0, 1, or two ones, in which case a 1 would go into the next column, 
since calculators cannot comprehend it too. Once the calculator has the answer, since it is in binary, it turns on a series of lines and or pixels to create the visual match of the number that we understand, which is decimal, or as mathematicians call it, base 10. Part of the reason why calculators are so quick is because at their core, they're relying on electrical impulses, which travel at the speed of light. So calculators, much like computers, translate everything into binary or base 2 because it allows numbers to be translated into electrical signals that are either on, one or off, zero. To display an answer, it then sends this information to its LCD screen. And as those of you with any sort of LCD TV monitor or clock may know, these displays work by placing a voltage across a layer of molecules, which are layered between filters, and the changing voltage will make these liquid crystals appear opaque or transparent. But from pooling answers to pooling genes, is modern medicine affecting the future of the species, asks Derek from Japan. Hi. My question is, should we be worried about the future of the human genome? And what I mean by that is, we no longer reproduce based on the strongest survives. Medical science has gotten to a point where many people live to adulthood who would have never lived 50, 100, 300 years ago. So many of us wouldn't be here to smell the roses and make splashes in puddles if it wasn't for modern medicine. So what will this mean for generations of the future? Send your answers to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can write on the forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. You can Twitter at Naked Scientists or you can find us on Facebook. Um, but that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to our guests, Anton Woods and Paul Callier from Cambridge University, Chris Maynard from Edinburgh University and Joe Jasinski from IBM, and to our production team of Tom Simkins, Mira Santillingham and Ben Valzer. In the meantime, if you've got any science questions for us, then send them by chris at thenakedscientists.com. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks to our guests, Anton Woods and Paul Kalea from Cambridge University, Chris Maynard from Edinburgh University and Joe Jasinski from IBM. And to our production team of Tom Simkins, Mira Senthillingham and Ben Valsler. Next week, we cool things down to discuss the science of cryogenics and cryopreservation. We'll be finding out what happens when something freezes and how cryogenics can be used to help keep biological samples in good condition. In the meantime, if you've got any science questions for us, tweet them to at Naked Scientists. You can write on a wall at thenakedscientists.com forward slash Facebook, or you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. 